Hey, yo, people on my floor, Mike V here. It's uh, 7 in the morning, but I can assure you this interview did not take place at 7 in the morning. I'm just an early riser. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I guess a couple months now, sorry, it's been a crazy summer. Um, not a cruel summer, thankfully. Uh, a couple weeks and months ago, we had Brendan Graves come by. Um, from the, well, for those of you that don't know me, uh, I am a disciple of record labels. I, I love labels and I always have, and that's what led me to work for most of the majority of my professional career thus far at record labels for and with record labels. Um, and I've always kind of been equally as interested in labels as I am in bands, especially those labels who kind of cultivate their own sense of identity which I think should be every label and I'm not saying that labels have to put out the same kinds of bands um, in fact I think the only requirement for a record label should be that you dig the music you're putting out uh, um, which if you look at the best record labels quote unquote the best is generally the case um a lot of them really don't have a defining sound, but they definitely have a defining quality. And uh, I think Paradise of Bachelors is is one of those and one of the more important, excuse me, one of the more important and, uh, and vital, small, wholly independent labels operating today. Um, and they're right around the corner from me here in Chapel Hill. So I had Brandon come by. Uh, and we talked about a lot of stuff and it was a fantastic conversation <clears throat> and he's an engaging conversationalist and, uh, and an overwhelmingly smart dude. Um, and it was a fantastic talk. So have a listen, stick around. I hope you enjoy and we'll talk to you soon. All right, what did I just say, five? I think this is episode five. Yeah, five. Welcome. Thank you. People on my floor, listeners, of whom we have none yet, but <laughs> hopefully by the time we get to episode five, we'll be um, overwhelmed. <laughs> uh, we are here in the record room with Brendan Greaves. Did I said that right? Yes. Okay. Uh, Paradise of Bachelors, one of, uh, of the more revered... Uh, boutique labels around, I guess you could say. Oh, that's nice to hear. Is that is that <laughs> is that an app description? <laughs> sure. Um, uh, based out of Chapel Hill. Uh, give us well first. Give us a little um, background on the label. What I mean, you guys, you're not putting out records that people are tuning in on. You know, radio, commercial radio. You guys are exist more in the experimental or. You just, I mean, how do you describe it? Describe <laughs> I guess it depends on what radio stations you listen to. I don't really listen to much radio myself these days, except for local college stations and public radio. Yeah. Um, and those folks do play our stuff. Uh, and actually, we had a story on NPR's Morning Edition yesterday, which oh, cool. was sort of a, a big thing about Michael Chapman, uh, who's an English that. artist. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that was that was nice to hear. Um, but, uh, yeah, we inhabit a realm that is, um, 
you know, probably outside commercial radio, whatever it is that they do these days. I don't even know. <laughs> it's same thing. Like I haven't listened to the radio, the quote unquote radio, yeah, probably since the seventh grade, and even then, it was just, you know, I didn't, I didn't get it. Right. Yeah. Uh, There's some good stations around still. I, I I like listening to gospel radio on the weekend sometimes, or hip-hop radio, or if there's a, a reggae or a dance hall show. I, I like radio for, uh, you know, introducing me to things that I would otherwise yeah. be unaware of in yeah. my everyday orbit. Well, and we have, I mean, we have a wealth down here of, I mean, between, uh, you know, I mean, obviously WNC with them mm-hmm. anymore, but uh, uh, KNC mm-hmm. is the shit. Um, sure. It was one of my happiest discoveries upon moving down here. Um, and then XDU, obviously, mm-hmm. which is more community based, right? Less college. I mean, it is a college station technically. It is a college station, but I think that you can get a show regardless of student status. Right. right. Um, like WXYC, for example, at Chapel Hill is a student station. It is, yeah, and you can stay on long after you've graduated, <laughs> which right. some folks do. But uh, yeah, our the label is really powered by XYC. DJs and alums. I when I came down here for grad school uh, and DJed at WXYC for uh, a couple years, and all of our interns and employees over the years have been sourced through WXYC, as well as my son's babysitters and nannies. <laughs> so the house is always full of college students with uh, a radio station connection. It's a family affair. <laughs> it is. That's yeah. excellent. That's, I mean, that's and that's why we. That's why we occupy the circles we do. Right. Because there are actually people that you want. There are. <laughs> yeah. Um, very cool. So, so, all right. So you got, but so, all right. So continue with the, the, the label. What's, what's the mission? Not, not the mission statement, but what is the mission of, you know, beyond bringing good unheard music into the world? Well, you know, I think that that is central to it. We're interested in exploring under-recognized music, uh, and the the curatorial vision is um, is braided. There are two strands. We do reissues of archival and out-of-print material, uh, and we also do um, releases of contemporary musicians, new records, uh, and theoretically, at least within. Uh, my mind and my business partner Chris's mind. There's, um, you know, a conceptual dialogue between those two strands. Right. <laughs> Sometimes it may only be evident to us, right. but uh, but hopefully that 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 is the case. Um, and you know, the label was founded with a mission to to really investigate Southern vernacular music, however you want to define that. But at this point, we've done records with English artists like Michael Chapman. Yeah. Mike Cooper is an English artist, lives in Rome. Um, you know, Texan artist Terry Allen. And so it's, it's the, the, the vision has uh, expanded further afield geographically. Um, but still, I, I think we're interested in where music comes from, the idea of what folk music might be right. in any form, whether you mean, you know, work songs or gospel music or rock and roll or um, country music, all of which I think are strands of folk music. Right. You know? Which I always found that funny in, in kind of the literature sense. Like, he's a Southern writer. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Like, right. he's a writer from the South. Yeah, yeah. But, like, what if, you know, like, <laughs> we, like, my band, for example, we were we were a Jersey band. Mm-hmm. Like, our, our, our being from New Jersey was inextricable right. from who, you know. And, and I feel like in a lot of ways in, in music, there's, especially when it comes to the South, mm-hmm. especially when, it, I mean, there's just such a 
deep-rooted for whatever reason, I'm sure. Was this something you studied in school? or? Yes, actually. I mean, uh, part of the accident of the label being founded had to do with... Um, my, my research as a graduate student, I studied folklore at UNC, okay. which is how I ended up here was about 10 years ago. Was it the ecology department or was it just general folklore? Well, it's the folklore graduate department okay. um, at UNC Chapel Hill. And I did write a lot about music uh, for my research, but I, I also wrote extensively about visual art. Mm-hmm. So it was a way for me to write about and study music and art without um, worrying too much about uh, boundaries between genres. Right. So what did so? Um, I mean, how what did so? Take me back to kind of before that. I mean, what? How did you get into music to kind of begin with? Was it always folk? Were you were you a punk kid that grew up like like most of us? And yes, <laughs> <laughs> I was. I mean, I grew up. My, my dad uh, always played music around the house. He um, was sort of an omnivore, but was really into jazz and R and B. And country music, um, uh, the latter of which I did not understand at all growing up in New England. We grew up in rural Massachusetts outside Boston, and I didn't understand that language right. of country music at right. all. And so I've returned to it in a pretty aggressive way, but it took some time. Um, and I always played music, I always played in bands and rock bands and punk bands and grew up seeing um, rock shows in, at the Middle East in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, you know, after college, I wound up in Philadelphia and played for several years in a band called uh, The Wrist and Pistols. Got very close for um, with, a, with a band that we opened for kind of perennially, chronically, called Espers, oh, uh, yeah. which is how I met Chris, who yep. was the bass player in Espers, uh, and is now my business partner in the label. They uh, were... Um what label were they on? They were, they were on, on Drag City. Drag City. Yeah, at yeah. the ends. Um, and they have, they have, somebody from that band went on to do very cool shit. Uh, Meg Baird still plays That's quite a lot and, do, and does records with yes. Drag City, and she's amazing. She uh, she played at my wedding. Oh, cool. As a good friend. Very cool. Yeah. <laughs> and she's kind of one of the linchpins of that whole psychedelic Philly scene. Yeah, absolutely. The, I mean, she, the yeah. The thread that ran from Bardo Pond to absolutely. Kurt Vile. Yeah, she's a huge influence she would be so embarrassed to hear that um that she's an influence she, on you on anyone she's oh. extremely modest right right, right. <laughs> but she's an incredible uh, yeah she's an incredible talent I, I love her music um but that is the world you know that sort of turned my ears uh away from the music i'd grown up with um you know rock and roll and, and jazz especially and um you know more towards other things in college i started playing banjo and got into old pre-war folk music and blues music but moving to philly kind of oriented me towards histories of psychedelic music and confluence with folk music and that was kind of a ripe time in the early 2000s i'm and it's funny because we were there we were in philly at the same time i lived there from 01 to 2006 me too yeah exact same years same years (laughs) and i was in college and at the time, so what happened with me was that I, I got into, and I'm not saying this to sound snobbish, because I'm fucking hardly a snob. I got into really good music way too early. Mm-hmm. I was I I was way too young, listening to Pavement and Dinosaur Junior, Bell and Sebastian in the in the in the sixth grade, you know, in seventh. Mm-hmm. 
by the time I got to college, I had gone back and regressed to all the shit I missed out on. Right. Like Guns N' Roses mm-hmm. and, you know, Motley Crue and all the stuff that my knucklehead friends were listening to. Yeah. So when I was in college, I, I, you know, and I was still getting deeper into the, you know, the Elephant Six stuff. And, but at the same time, like, I feel like I missed out, especially being in Philly at that time. And, you know, I was at a lot of those shows. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, um, I'm trying to think. You used to go see Bardo all the time and. Uh, Dr. Dog was another one, The Teeth, all those bands were, you know, but there was just so much shit I missed out on because I was b- too busy playing catch up right. with all the <laughs> stuff that I should have been listening to when I was 13. Uh-huh. And it was such a, it was such a fertile scene. And what's crazy is like in a much different way, because the bands that are coming out of there now are, I think have almost nothing to do with the bands that were back then, mm-hmm. but it's become like this hotbed this like every good band you read about right now is like oh there's they're probably from Philly <laughs> you know and it's kind of it's kind of crazy to me that, that that that's happening i don't know why i'm sure there's some sociological explanation behind it that has to do with rents so <laughs> so you were all right so you were in Philly playing in bands um and then you came down here so you went to, you went to school in Boston i did yeah and what what brought you to Philly um well, that's a good question. Uh, I didn't know what else to do with myself, really. Yeah. Um, you had a was, college degree. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was living in Cambridge in Somerville, and uh, my grandfather was was sick. He was quite elderly at that point. So I moved in with him outside Philadelphia and looked after him oh, cool. uh, until he passed and then got my own place with a friend. Uh, I did have some friends from college who grew up in Philly, and, you know, I did have family there, so it seemed like a logical place to escape right. to. Right. There was a sojourn in Providence in between, in between Cambridge and Philadelphia, so I was, like, gradually moving southward. <laughs> Working your way down. The, exactly. The, the, and now you're here. Yeah, yeah. So I was in Philly for a few years, and... I, uh, my main job there was uh, I was working as a curator and an art dealer at a, a gallery called Fleischer Ullman Gallery. Okay, and so that got me further into these worlds of um, what on earth the the word folk might mean right. related to art and, and music. Was um, it that kind of? It was that kind of gallery. Yeah, I mean, traditionally it was a gallery that showed folk art and self-taught art, but more and more contemporary art as well. I mean, we sold like secondary market Picasso paintings and Anselm Kiefer paintings, but then there was this whole rich vein of, uh, you know, Bill Trailer, James Castle, uh, Felipe Jesus Gonsalves, all these uh, vernacular artists mm-hmm. operating outside the rarefied realm of capital A art world right. and like what, you know, buildings with white columns, right. people making art in their homes. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, that is, I, I've always been fascinated by that link, that art of the everyday and music of the everyday, everyday, you know, people making music as daily practice. Sure. You know, that's a, an interesting um, thing to consider why people do it and how they do it. Well, it's, it's, it's weird. It was always weird to me, you know, living in New York, especially uh, because everyone is so fucking careerist, Mm -hmm. you know, people and I, you know, obviously it's a generalization. It's a tremendous generalization, but people there don't make art to make art. Mm -hmm. They make art for some end. Right. You know, again, huge generalization, (laughs) but I mean, that's why you moved to New York. Right. That's why you moved to LA Mm -hmm. or, you know, so I'm, I, I feel very much the same way because I have a lot of friends and, 
and and family who are you know who are tremendous artists musicians mm-hmm. who are just just making shit just because they have to I mean they have some sort of you know uh, uh, undeniable nature that that they have to you know mm-hmm. and I think that's really tremendous especially when it's a self taught thing but then again on the other side of the coin it's it's when it comes to art especially it's something I just don't I don't get you know it's not that I don't get art but the hype. Mm-hmm. You know the, um, and I guess it's very much the same way in the music world. Like it is, yeah. You, know, you get the right people talking, mm-hmm. and I was reading some article about some artist whose name I forgot. He's a young guy, and he's you know selling his pieces for millions upon millions of dollars. And I'm mm-hmm. Like how you know how does that happen? <laughs> like how does, and it's getting the right people to talk to say the right things about your you know. Whereas, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you're the expert on this. Folk art is kind of the opposite. It can happen in in that realm as well, and in ways that are ad, as disturbing. It usually happens after an artist's death, right? Even like, more uh, Henry often. Darger, Ex- the one certainly, I know. right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's so. There's this whole um, history of exploitation right. of that work. Uh, that was also something that I studied in graduate school. I was interested in how that happened and why it happened, right. and how we could prevent it hopefully from happening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but music is the same. I mean, they're, they're, they're interesting. They're different social worlds, but I think there are a lot of the same tendencies when it comes to people having prejudices against um, whether you are trained or untrained or part of a certain uh, milieu or tradition or not, you right. know, to who you associate with. Right. And how you present yourself, and what your day job is, and what color you are, right. and where you come from, right. Right. is sadly as considered as what you actually make. Mm-hmm. So I was interested in those questions. I, and in a lot of ways, you know, especially you know, looking in, you know, at it from in the scope of music, for example, a lot of times when one band, quote unquote, blows up, a lot of their you know, sister bands or cousin mm-hmm. bands will also. Right. And that's how mm-hmm. a scene, that's how a yeah. scene happens. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like, well, why is that happening over there when this guy is making this tremendous music in mm-hmm. his bedroom in Omaha? Right. And I'm not talking about Bright Eyes. <laughs> um, but it's, 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 it's interesting to me. And then something that you guys do, which I feel like is very, is very cool and, 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 you know, incredibly valuable is to is to find those people however you guys do it which i will ask you um and i know i hate that i hate that question it's like <laughs> you know people used to ask me all the time like you know especially when i worked back at matador i was mm-hmm. like how do i get signed to matador i'm mm. like listen man the guys who signed the bands at matador and those labels 4ad and sub pop they're really good at what they do so if if, if you should be signed they probably know who you are already <laughs> if you're at that you know it's not one of those things. It rarely happens. I mean, Perfect yeah. Genius, I think, was a good example. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Sure, but yeah. Somebody sent his link to Matador. Yeah. And they were like, whoa, blown mm-hmm. away. He played like three shows or something before he got signed. But that never happens. Yeah, it's it's rarer than I think people are led to believe. Because right. when it does happen, it's a big deal and everyone's interested. And the story is repeated right. ad nauseum. Right. Right. He was a bedroom artist. He put one song up on band camp and yeah. it blew up. But it's, I mean, yeah, in most cases it's about, you know, presenting your work 
and working right. like anything else and getting good at your craft and playing shows right. and getting noticed and trying to meet people right. like any other job. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Or hiring a great publicist. <laughs> yeah, though that helps too. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a whole other thing or that you don't have money. for most jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Having you enough know? money to, to pay, yeah. you know, I don't know. I'm not going to name any names, but I have a lot of publicist friends who I love dearly. Yeah. That's so. a strange profession. And, um, yeah, they they are disparaged, I think, but their work is important. Um, but it's a it's a it's a hard job. I think. Well, and and, and and I'm not saying this at all in the slightest to disparage publicists yeah. because I do. There, it, it's one of the hardest jobs in the music business. It is. And yeah. the girl who played in my sang in my band with me, she was she is a publicist. She was a publicist, um, and she still continues to be. And so I saw it intimately. Mm-hmm. And. I always compare it to like a weatherman or a baseball player. It's like baseball players and publicists are the only people who can like do their job three out of 10 times and still get paid. <laughs> and it's not the publicist's fault. Right. I'm not, yeah. again, I'm not disparaging anybody. It's just, you know, it's, it's so, it, and especially now with the deluge of shit and content mm-hmm. and there's so much crap out there and you're just, there's just this din where it's like, mm-hmm. how do you, but then, on the other hand, you know, the, the 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 editorial world at large becomes obsessive about certain, you know, deer hunters. A perfect example. There was a time for three years where you couldn't go a day without hearing deer hunter news. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's just like, why why is it deer hunter? You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Um, but anyway, so so yeah, take me through the process. You you went to Philly, came down here. Were you putting out records in Philly or? No, I I messed around with releasing records. Um, well, I guess a little bit. I put out I put out some seven inches in Philly of my own music, but in the context of art project, like art editions and yeah. parts of sculpt, like parts of sculptures. I made a record player machine that like a, basically was like a jukebox vending machine, and and then when I was in Boston, when I was in college, my friend William. It was also my bandmate later in Philly had a label called English Muffin Records and he was putting out noise records by like VVM mm-hmm. and uh, uh, electronic stuff and, and noise stuff. And um, our friend Luke um, was in a band called Lucky Dragons that I played in. And so we were releasing his records that we played on. So, But it was all very insular. Right. It was like we played in bands and we released our own records right. and our friends' records on a very, very localized basis the internet was not really a vehicle for discovering music at that point at all we were just talking to each other we were just yeah it was a vehicle for like emailing each other (laughs) and but yeah so we were in conversation with each other and then with select you know weirdos in like copenhagen and you know there are these weird strange little pockets but it was you know this was just 15 to 20 years ago and it was so much more fragmented yeah finding each other was a much more difficult and um, luck-based and fortuitous process. And, but at the same time, maybe, maybe not, but probably led to more fruitful relationships. I think in some ways, yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was definitely different. I think there's a, there's a tendency to be nostalgic for pre-internet discourse and musical discourse especially, and I think there are good reasons for being nostalgic, but there are also good reasons for... Um, you know, uh, valuing yeah. where things are now, which is also 
interesting in a different way. Well, has, I mean, has different problems. Are you a fan of Louis <laughs> C.K.? I am, yeah. It's like his joke about the cell phones. It's like my cell right. phone sucks. No cell phone sucks. Every cell phone is a yeah, fucking they're miracle. Amazing, <laughs> like incredible. Well, yeah, I mean, and so when 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 there's this there's this nostalgia that people have for the good old days mm-hmm. of the '90s, back when I had to make a mixtape. Like, right? Yeah, dude, I get it. Like, mm-hmm. a mixtape was a fun thing to make, mm-hmm. but at the same time, like, you know, right now we have the entire history of human knowledge mm-hmm. literally in the palm of our hand i always make the joke to my wife i say i say you know if you told us 30 years ago you'd have the entire history of human knowledge literally in the palm of your hands and you look up cat videos <laughs> or fails you know mm-hmm. and I, I i fucking do it i you know i i, I but but it's just it, it you, how you take it for granted and right. you know if you can go back in the day and think to yourself like to find this weird noise collective in Copenhagen mm-hmm. how much effort that required right yeah. whereas now you just find them on a Facebook group mm-hmm. or wherever right um, <laughs> it, it's yeah and 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 for anybody to to say one is better than it's just you know it's yeah. it's, it's a it's a waste of breath as far I as I'm so. concerned you know there's a lot of tremendous stuff right now um, the fact that you know, again, I mean, there's an upside and downside to everything. Bandcamp is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. GarageBand, which we're recording on. Any asshole with a Mac can make a record right. and put it online. Mm-hmm. Does that mean any asshole should make a record? Probably <laughs> not. But it's cool that they can. Yeah. You know, and it's cool that they can reach the farthest corners of the world. Mm-hmm. But was it cooler back in the day when you sat around for weeks waiting for that flying nun tape to arrive? You know what right. I mean? <laughs> So, all right, so you moved, so years in Philly, decide, I'm going back to school. Mm-hmm. Did you always know you were going back to school, or? No, I was just sick of the art world, <laughs> <laughs> which is an, an easy thing to be sick of. I mean, I had a good experience. I, I loved my boss, John Ullman, at the gallery, and I, I was lucky to work with my friends. Where was it? <clears throat> it was uh, on right by Rittenhouse, okay. um, 16th and Walnut Street. Okay. It's since moved to Arch Street. Okay. Um, but it was... 16th and Walnut for many years. Uh, but yeah, just, you know, a lot of, um, well, selling art is a strange business of making people feel intelligent about their choices. Right. Um, and <laughs> is yeah, it like just know. a, just an unbelievable amount of ass kissing? Yeah, there is. It's sort of the practice. Right. Um, and just a lot of drugs and drinking. And it was, uh, I, I wanted to get out of that, that world for a while. So, uh, graduate school, <laughs> another strange realm of ass kissing <laughs> seemed to be a viable option. I don't know. I applied to Berkeley and UNC and I decided on UNC cause I, I just didn't think I could afford to live in Berkeley at that point in right, my life. <laughs> right. You'd be stuck in uh what's that? What there's one, there's one town over that we stayed in on tour one time and where people found out they're like, Oh shit. Like, <laughs> I forget. It was like Rose, Roseburg. Oh, uh, okay. Berkeley. I don't know that area. It's right well. near Berkeley. Yeah. And they're like, dude, that's a f- <laughs> fucked up neighborhood. Like we, we wish, you know, right. So anyway, those are two of the only folklore programs left. So those, those are sort of among the few options. Okay. But yeah, we moved down here. Um, my wife and I moved down here in 2006 and, uh, I was in school for two years and, uh, the label um, was an accident. You know, I, I was doing some uh, folk life research, uh, just a freelance gig 
after we finished, uh, I was doing a, a musical inventory of Cleveland County, North Carolina, which is west of Charlotte. Okay. Uh, they have an Earl Scruggs Museum there um, and a Don Gibson Theater. Earl Scruggs and Don Gibson are both from uh, that county um, and legends in, in country music yeah. and bluegrass. So uh, they were getting that off the ground and asked me to do an inventory of the county to basically talk to as many musicians as I could and do oral histories and try to tell a story of what the musical context of this one right. county in, in the state This uh, is while you're still in school. This is right when I finished. Okay. Uh, so I did that and I ended up, um, meeting a, uh, a songwriter and record shop owner and label owner named David Lee, who, um, was, uh, an African American guy in his seventies at the time who, um, put out a number of records, gospel and soul and rock and roll records. He was notable for working with, um, racially integrated bands at the time, which was very rare there um, in the South and especially in that part of the state, uh, and was just this fascinating figure whose music was really under underappreciated and, and unknown, even to his neighbors. Right. You know, he had just he had stopped doing it a while ago and was living this quiet life, and yet you could, if you really cared about it, you could find his records on eBay for a thousand dollars. Really? You know? <laughs> yeah. So I thought, well, this, we should do something about this. Right. And, uh, I interviewed him several times and, um, he thought I was a guy named Jason Perlmutter, uh, who, yeah, Jason owns Carolina soul. That's right. And, uh, at the time he had Carolina soul as it was just a project researching soul music and, and gospel and R and B from North and South Carolina. And so Jason had been in touch with, Mr. Lee independently of me. And he just thought, well, these are these two youngish white guys from the same part of the state asking me like suspicious questions about my music and my records. So he was like, we've talked on the phone, haven't we? And I said, no, Mr. Lee, you're confusing me with someone else. And he said, no, I'm sure that we've talked before. You called me and you even bought some records from me. And so I kind of pieced together, oh, that must be Jason, who I didn't know at right. the time, but I knew his knew name. Of him. So Jason and I met and decided to put out a uh, compilation of Mr. Lee's records. So that was our first release, and uh, it was called Said I Had a Vision, Songs and Labels of David Lee. And uh, it sold out before we released it, and we thought, well, maybe... Did you know there was an audience? Something. Not really. Did I mean, I'd, we kind of knew the guys from Numero Group, who right. now Rob, uh, Rob's a friend. Uh, we're both distributed by Secretly, and um, Rob's a great guy and has been very helpful to us. And so we knew that... And I was interested in that world of reissues and, um, you know, I was a big fan and collector of soul music myself, but, uh, I didn't really know. I mean, I thought we'll just do this. And between the two of us, we know enough people who are interested in records that we can sell a thousand of these things probably. And, and so we did. Uh, and then from there it, it kind of, uh, it snowballed in interesting ways. And, uh, the next, the next one was, um, a record with his golden messenger. Poor no, was that, was that first record? Was that the first, was that, that was the first, that was the part, yeah. zero, zero, one. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That okay. was it. Uh, and we had no plans to do anything after that. Right. Um, but, uh, one of my colleagues in the folklore department at UNC was Mike Taylor. Right. Um, who at that time had left behind the court and spark his band from San Francisco. And, uh, was making music just at home uh, as his gold messenger. And, you know, uh, 
pretty casual basis. I mean, he was studying, right, so right. he'd record stuff at home. He'd give me CDRs of stuff, and you know, once he gave me a happy birthday CDR of the Golden Girls theme song, we should probably release that at yeah. some point. Of him singing it? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I'll play it for you sometime. You, you probably should. I mean, you probably, I mean, that's, if that's not a, I have a, I have a, a, a diatribe about Record Store Day, but if that's not a Record Store Day piece, I don't, I, I, um, Maybe too private. I don't know if he would like that. But yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, I mean, so his music existed in this, consciously in this very private domestic realm. Sure. But he... Going back to what we were saying before, he just someone who's making it for no one other than... Exactly. Though, his, though you know, in the past, the court and spark, he, he had goals that were bigger than that, but he was, you know, I think disillusioned for good reason. Right. Um, and wanted to do something different with his life. But anyway, so, you know, we, uh, I, I really loved the songs he was doing and we would trade songs and, and talk. He lived through the woods, his wife, Abby, uh, and he lived through the woods from Samantha and, and me. And so, uh, we were just close friends and I thought, well, this is another project we, I can do for a friend because right. I think these songs should be heard. Right. And so it was the same thing. We pressed 500 to start and they sold immediately and we thought, oh, I, I guess, is this, is this really happening? People are interested <laughs> in this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so then after that, <clears throat> it continued. Jason, my, my partner at that time, stayed on for one more release, which was uh, a reissue of uh, the band Plant and See. Mm-hmm. Um, who were from southeastern North Carolina, racially integrated band from the late 60s, led by Lumbee Indian guy named Willie French Lowry. Uh, and I was friends with um, his wife at the time, Melinda, uh, who's a history professor at UNC. So again, it was sort of personal connections and relationships yeah. and music that was, you know, uh, underappreciated. Right but had this fascinating history and cultural context. Were they all still alive? Were they- uh, Willie sadly passed away before the record came out, right. like a couple months before, maybe just a month coming. before. He knew, and okay. I worked with him extensively, and he was psyched. Uh, and irascible. He's an amazing <laughs> personality. What a really incredible guy. Um, Did and they sell leader. records when they were... Sort of. They were on a label called White Whale, okay. which was the Turtles label. Okay. Uh, that was really the big act. But also Jim Ford, um, whose stuff has been reissued in recent years, an amazing songwriter, friend of Sly Stone, like country funk guy. His records were on White Whale. So they had some notable acts and a pretty cool discography, but it was a terribly run label. North Carolina? No, uh, also this is another California label. Okay. Yeah. Um, So they went out West to record this record. I think some, maybe some in New York and some out West. Um, But uh, so that was the third one. And then Jason decided to concentrate on his used record business, which he had been doing online the whole time. Right. And that's how Carolina soul was born and eventually turned into a record store, which is a great store. Yeah, it is. If it you're is. listening and you're in the Triangle area, holler, and I will happily take you over there. Um, so, so then, so then, where'd you go from there? I mean, you were well, that was kind of the first phase of the label. You know, those first three releases. And this, you, your partner's name is Chris. Yeah, Chris Smith. And um, when Jason decided to concentrate on on used records. Um, I called up Chris because he was sort of the natural choice for right. someone to come on board because he was a uh, you know close friend, still living in Philly, but we had sort of a telepathic understanding of music that we cared about. Yeah, yeah. and you know, big record nerds. He's more of a record 
geek than I am, I would say. Right. <laughs> as far as a collector and his knowledge, it's it's really over the top. Yeah. And so like the, the, the really arcane. Did you guys, other than cutting seven inches in Philly and putting out, did you did either of you have label experience? Was this like, how the fuck do we do this? Yeah, we had no idea. What is a lacquer? I mean, you know what a lacquer was. Yeah. Like, theoretically, like, <laughs> what the fuck are we doing? We understood the the the, the physical process of making a record, right. but not um, much beyond that. Not, not <laughs> so, how to sell them. Yeah, I Which mean... nobody knows. No, but <laughs> people still don't know. I mean, those first few records, we... The first one was distributed by Mississippi Records, oh, actually, cool. which was an interesting experience. And again, it was just I knew some folks who knew those guys uh, and um, they were really sweet and helpful. Uh, and then by the time. No, wait, does he is that the, he doesn't. That's the guy that doesn't. He keeps his inventory in his head, right? Yeah, like, Eric, yeah. Eric. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, there was a big profile on him recently. I can't remember what a paper. Vice, maybe? No, it was... Uh it was it was a it was a it was a big mainstream paper I think maybe it was the New York Times yeah. yeah it was funny to see it but he's he's a character and I mean he's brilliant I love that label um, but uh, yeah and then this and so I think they did the first two and then and then we signed up with Light in the Attic f- as of Plant and Sea okay the third one um, so but still we didn't really I mean Mississippi is not really a distributor right. They're a label that right. distributes select things, and they're also very unconventional in how they do business. Sure. Uh, and Light in the Attic is a great label that is distributing more and more stuff. So they are distributors, but um, but they're a label first right. and foremost. Sure. You know. So which speaking of those guys, I just grabbed the Donnie and Joe Emerson oh, outtakes. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> fucking goofy, man. It's like it's like John Hughes soundtrack. Shit. Uh, I haven't heard it's it. It's so cool, man. But yeah. When you get a chance, that's check it out. cool. So, that, yeah, another great label. Those guys are 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 great. They do really strong work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we were just trying to figure it out, you know. And all of those folks who helped distribute the early records were helpful and. Um, educating well, at the us. same time, I imagine that like those guys were just getting started. Too. I mean, what year was this? This was 2000. And our first record was 2010. So this was between 2010, and 2012. So those guys weren't old hands yet. Not exactly. No, they'd been doing it longer than us. Right. Um, on the label but, side, at least yeah. from the collector side, I'm sure. But, but, but yeah. you know, I mean, light in the attic is numero. All those guys are yeah. you know, relatively kind of in the same yeah, they all started just a few years before us, basically. Right, right. Yeah. And they're all great, all fantastic labels, mm-hmm. all, all tremendous. So then where'd you go from there? That, then you got hooked up with Secretly. So, well, no, Chris came on board and we stayed with Light in the Attic for a few more releases. And, you know, the, so the first th- two years of the label, we just did three records. It was just a right. project, you know, a project, basically. And then Chris came on board and we ramped things up. Uh, and, uh, was that a conscious decision? Yeah. Cause I thought, well, let's do this. Let's see. Let's see if we can do this. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so. well, it's, it's easy when you see other people doing it. Yeah. It's right. easy when you see light in the attic doing it or you mm-hmm. see, you know, I couldn't imagine, you know, the only reason I ever had the balls to quit my job and go on tour is cause I saw a hundred bands before me do it. Right. I yeah. would, if I was an artist, I wouldn't, you know, have the the slightest you know uh, inkling of how to or what mm-hmm. to, but when you see and that was one of the coolest things for me at least getting into the music business originally you know, it's 
10, 12 years ago, it's like, oh, like people can actually do this. Mm-hmm. It's not this weird, like fantastical, you know, right. Valhalla. It's like, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's just something people do. It's, 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 yeah. it's, a, it's a way that people <laughs> pay their bills and make a living and enjoy what they're doing. Right. Yeah. So, so that's cool. So, so, all right. So you guys were doing that. Yeah. Um, and you know, things, things, uh, moved more quickly, um, after that point. So we did sort of a flurry of releases, some more reissues, um, Vietnam vet band called the red rippers, mm-hmm. uh, a country, uh, eccentric from Nashville and Johnny, Ca- Johnny cash sidekick and tour manager, uh, named chance. Um, before Chance the Rapper was right. was known, <laughs> uh, we did an issue of his bizarre record made in his parents' um, bonus room in suburban Nashville. Just it's a beautiful and strange record, and we released more records by His Gold Messenger. Started working with Steve Gunn, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and then after the first Steve Gunn record, we did Time Off. At that point, um, we switched distribution to Red Eye. Okay. Or local, and that was made sense. They're a bigger company, yeah, and had a warehouse down the road, right? So that's how we got involved with them. Uh, but, um, you know, it was just it, it, it's hard to explain, I guess, how things proceeded. It's just at that point, there was a, a strong momentum that hasn't really abated, you know. Um, we're always thinking of new projects and uh, um, trying to keep up with wish list of reissues and uh it's um it's been exciting so what um when did you guys kind of go full time with it what were you doing you said the first two years was just three records yeah so you were done with school by then yeah at that point i was working for the state of north carolina at a government job in raleigh i was the director of public art for the state Oh. So I worked for the Department of Cultural Resources. Okay. So I was still very much in the art world side of things right. at that point. Um, and uh, and right about when Chris um, joined up, I quit that job and started doing the label full time. And then some as well as some arts consulting and mm-hmm. art writing, um, which I still occasionally do when asked, you know, if someone asks me to write a catalog essay or to help curate. A show I'll do that usually right usually I regret it because <laughs> I don't have enough time right <laughs> but but I do still take on that work because I want to remain involved in that world sure. at some in some way and I can't turn down paying jobs no. you know <laughs> no, you own a record label <laughs> exactly so <laughs> so I'd still do freelance consulting but it's it it really varies you know I, th- I did maybe two little jobs last year and this year I've got one going. Right. Um, so, but it's fun. Sometimes it's music related. I worked on the exhibition Southern accent, um, last year for the Nasher museum. Was, yeah. I was going to yeah. say, right. So I, I helped, I co-curated all of the music archive portion of it and then wrote a long essay for their catalog. So, you know, when people offer me things like that, I'm excited to yeah. pursue them. Well, especially when it's something that's not your main thing. Yeah, exactly. It sort of makes me appreciate um, the label more <laughs> to right. have some distance from it. And, right. and to be able to write about music and art in a different context is refreshing. Right. It's like, oh, this isn't actually a narrative for a release right. for publicity materials. I can write about things in a different way. That's uh, it's sort of a, it's a relief to do that. 
Yeah, and just getting out of kind of what what it is that you know anything, any job is going to come with certain stresses. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, it's <laughs> you know, I I I'm cutting a record right now, and it's like I don't have a record label to I'm not beholden to anybody. Mm-hmm. I I could just do, not that I couldn't do whatever the fuck I wanted before, but like, yeah. If I sell a hundred copies of this record, I'm mm-hmm. gonna be psyched because mm-hmm. I'm yeah. the one selling it. Right. <laughs> Not the last record we put out that didn't sell a few thousand copies, and it was devastating. Oh, you know what I mean? Right. So it's yeah, and it's it's the same thing with with with, with anything. I mean, it's yeah. you know, um, so that's you know, it's good that you, in keeping your 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 foot and 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 again, like 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 anything else. I mean, who knows what kind of those relationships? I I find it funny the older I get and. The more I work in the music, it's just the, the connections you make always come back. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter what, I kind of, I kind of like to, I like to think of life as like, uh, what were those things called? Not, not Hot Wheels, but remember the tracks when we were kids, the car tracks that you could put together. Yeah, it's right. Like, it's, uh-huh. like a, it's a figure eight. Sure, right. And you always yeah. keep uh-huh. passing back each other. You know, so, <laughs> so, so at the time, kind of in the first, in the first, I don't know era of Paradise of Bachelors mm-hmm. where you got I mean it was more I mean you had his called the messenger mm-hmm. you had Steve eventually mm-hmm. but it sounds like it was more reissue focused it's it was still pretty even at that point okay. you know through um and remains so to this day uh, I think it's almost exactly half and half okay and has been fairly consistently every year with the exception of sort of now and then through the next year when suddenly we have all these new records mm-hmm. And not many reissues lined up for whatever reason. It's just an issue of timing, I guess. But uh, yeah, you know, uh, our first release and our third release, David Lee and Plant and C were reissues. And then our fifth and our seventh were reissues. Uh, Six was a His Golden Messenger record. Eight was Steve Gunn. Nine was Promised Land Sound, a Nashville band. Ten was new. But so it's like kind of goes back and forth. but then our 12th release was by Lavender Country, the, the first openly gay country band. That was a sort of big um, his, historic reissue for us. Uh, and it's it doesn't exactly alternate, but it's close to even. And Is that intentional? It is. I mean, it's intentional. Yes. As intentional as it can it's be. It's as intentional as it can be. I mean, I'm never trying. And we've never been in a point where we've thought we have to do another reissue. Right. It's just that, um, or we have to do an, a new record. It's, it's that, uh, you know, our interests diverge in different directions so it's just natural to do them and for them to be part of the same conversation but the experience of working on a reissue and a new record is very different right you know they're um you know with reissues you're dealing with artists who are sometimes deeply suspicious of you for good reason sure and in some cases who have left states yeah right or estates and in some cases they've no longer making music right. or, um, you know, we haven't worked with any artists who are no longer living, but we have worked with artists who have sort of disavowed previous phases of their career sure. or don't, or don't play music at all anymore. Sure. And that's an interesting process of, um, and these are people who have had relative amounts of success were in some cases, labels. in some cases, yes. I mean, we've done a lot of private press stuff. So okay. a lot of our reissues have been very small scale private press, like sell it out of your basement. Right. Uh, or like bring it to the dumpster and get rid of it. You know, Kenny Knight, we did this country rock reissue by this guy, Kenny Knight from Colorado. And he, at some point dumped 
all the remaining copies of the record in, in a dumpster because he just couldn't deal with living with them anymore. It's just like, I got to get these out of the house, you know? Awesome. No one's ever going to sell them. And now there are, you know, he did keep some and they've made their out and way into the world and they're like three or $400 record now. Um, but, uh, you throw them out. Yeah. The market was uh, barren. Right. Yeah, that's a common story, dumpster discoveries. Um, but then, you know, we have worked on releases that had proper labels, um, Plant and Sea, the Mike Cooper releases um, were on Pi and Dawn, you uh-huh. know, like Dawn at the same studio, same producer as Donovan and, right. you know, right. uh, and um, Terry Allen, our recent uh, releases by Terry Allen were self-released, but ended up being picked up by Sugar Hill Records mm-hmm. later on mm-hmm. and reissued in their own right in the 90s. So it's a it's a mix. So sometimes musicians are still active and it's natural for them to consider making their work available again. In other cases, it takes some convincing and some um, relationship building, you right. know, and trust building. It was certainly that way with Patrick Haggerty from Lavender Country, who mm. was playing for senior citizens, but uh, in in nursing homes, um, like playing gospel music and standards and oldies and old country music. And but he l- left his period of like radical gay liberation music right. long in the right. past he's happily married had a family uh you know still very politically engaged in in um in gay rights but uh but was not making music about that and just thought there is no no one wants to hear that it's too radical for anyone so was that i mean was that was that a difficult process? It was. It was slow. I mean, I called. I called up Patrick, and he kind of berated me for a little <laughs> while. And I mean, he was like, "Who? Who? Who are you? you? You know, you're some straight man calling me out of nowhere. What do you know about me? You know, what do you know about the movement? Yeah. My music is too radical for even like young gay activists today. And it is, I mean, it is sort of, he has a point. People aren't making gay country music because they seem incompatible superficially. Of course they're not because country music's about working class people and working class interests. And it's about, um, you know, everyday life and love and about telling stories so right. it's like they go perfectly together <laughs> right, right? <laughs> but but superficially today's country music is certainly not politically engaged in the way that it once was right. and so he has a point but um he well, toby keith is pretty politically engaged. well yeah some of some people are politically engaged in various ways but not in radical ways right right, right. Yeah. <laughs> or not in progressive ways exactly exactly <laughs> um but uh <laughs> So yeah, it took it took a little while there, but now you know Patrick's like he's like my gay dad. <laughs> like he and JB, his husband, send my son Asa presents. They sent him a big feather boa, all his glitter makeup, and David Bowie CDs. My son loves David okay. Bowie. Uh, Are they still in Nashville? Are they? <laughs> no, they never lived in Nashville. They, they uh, Patrick grew up in rural Washington State oh, on geez. a dairy farm near okay. the Canadian border, and he got turned on to country music by listening to Canadian radio, okay. which was like hev- heavily country oh, back yeah. then in the fifties, yeah. um, and still probably is yeah. uh, in rural parts of, of the country. Uh, yeah, so he never he finally played in Nashville, I guess, last year or the year before, and he was so happy to be there. To like it was like a big middle finger playing his playing his, <laughs> playing music. his music yeah and backed by younger bands these days he's sometimes backed by Promised Land Sound it's a Nashville band that we work yeah, with yeah we played with them oh, okay killer band yeah we played with them a couple times they're great guys and amazing players and another time Tamar from the Weather Station helped back back him up so 
he's sort of like in the zone of just working with pickup bands these days. Yeah. yeah. And he's so good were, at it. Were, 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 was he or tell me like have you ever had like a white whale? Speaking of white whales, <laughs> like was there a artist or a band uh, that it was just either it took forever or it was there were hurdles or you never thought you were going to put this record out <laughs> or that you've always wanted to put this record yeah. out. And finally here it is. Um, platters on your table. And yeah. Uh, well, I think, I think Terry Allen is probably that, yeah. that artist, you know, I, I first, I got turned on to Terry's music working in Philly at the gallery because Terry's a visual artist. That's mm-hmm. his day job. And so he had done some work in Philadelphia in the nineties on a musical called Chippy about a West Texas prostitute Okay, that he did with the guys from the Flatlanders uh, and his wife, Joe Harvey Allen, who's a great actor and performer. Uh, and so my boss at Fleischer Ullman gallery had a bunch of Terry Allen records and drawings in the back room. And he gave me a bunch at some point my birthday he called up terry and got him to give me copies of every one of his records and terry would call and he was this hilarious presence with this kind of like knife sharp west texas draw he would call and just mock my boss john and they like bullshit with each other and so i would take messages all the time for john from terry and then terry and i started talking and so we had this like funny phone relationship and then i got and when we moved down here, I wrote a I wrote an essay about Terry Allen and Doug Som and the, the tech musicians from Texas in the '60s and '70s moving to California and the music they made about home. Right. Um, and so I interviewed Terry for that, and we kind of stayed in touch since then. Mm-hmm. And I, at that point, I said, you know, your records are really hard to find on vinyl and they're really expensive. Would you ever consider reissuing them? And he kind of grumbled and he was still technically with Sugar Hill at the time. Um, but uh, we maintained conversations over the years and I sort of didn't really know if it was ever going to happen because he kind of like, he's really friendly and hilarious guy, but also got the sense he was kind of blowing me off, which he was. Right. And eventually at some point he was just like, okay, you've been so persistent and I was sending him records too. Like when we sure. put out another reissue that seemed relevant with like really extensive liner notes and a narrative and oral histories, I'd send it to him and be like, I bet I'll dig this. Yeah, like yeah. maybe this will help my cause. Yeah. And it did. It totally worked. <laughs> so finally he said, when my license expires with Sugar Hill, which was then owned by the Welk Music Group, which was bought by Rounder, it's like one of these cases of label buying, label yeah. buying, catalog buying, yeah. catalog. So when it expires, you know, they're not doing anything for me. So let's do this. Like, what, what have I got to lose? <laughs> you know? So, so he got so all his records back. Yeah. So he got his, his, at least his, his early records back. Um, and we reissued his first two records, uh, Juarez, um, which originally was released in a box in a limited edition box, uh, that he, it was lithographs, a set of lith, a suite of lithographs illustrating the narrative of the record and then the record. Uh, so we recreated that, um, as far as, uh, reproducing these lithographs for the first time ever. Like yeah. they'd never been printed in a book, even a book, even an art book wow. anywhere. Um, uh, and then Lubbock on everything, which was his double album about, uh, returning home to Lubbock, Texas, his hometown right. from California where he'd been living and working for years and sort of coming to grips with where he came from. Right. Two really, really different albums. Um, but two, I mean, they're two of my favorite and, my partner Chris's favorite records of all time. Right. Totally obsessed with these records, right. you know. When were they originally years. out? 
Uh, Juarez came out in 1974. Okay. And uh, Lubbock on Everything came out in 1979. Okay. Yeah. So, so when did those come out? When did you guys put those out? Well, just this year, um, May 2016, we put out Juarez, uh, and then October 2016, we put out Lubbock. Okay. And he's happy? He's psyched, man. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we got an invitation the other day to his 55th wedding anniversary in Marfa, Texas. Oh, nice. Which is going to be quite an affair. It's like like amazing guest list, all these artists. David Byrne, who wrote the liner notes for us for Lubbock, and all these folks are going to be there, and then it's like... Chris and Brendan at the, at the <laughs> bottom. <laughs> I, um, we recently attended a wedding of a, of a tour manager of a very quite successful band. Mm-hmm. They play in basketball arenas. Whoa, yeah. yeah. And we're the same thing. It's yeah. like this guy, and this girl, <laughs> right. and this guy, and then Mike and Emily. Yeah, like, it's the regular, the the regular people. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so tell me some about like what kind of um, contemporary stuff you guys are doing right now. I mean, what you got the well, his called the messengers, obviously with Merge. Now. Yeah, his called messengers Steve with Merge and Matador. Steve's with Matador. You guys um, got a farm team for indie, indie rock royalty. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Who's signing with Sub Pop next? And that's the um, you know, it's yeah, it's 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 interesting. Uh, that's something that um sensitive about because it's uh it's tough we're, we're still a small company you know and how, when you say we can do a lot so well i mean it's Did it's insult it, you no 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 not at all i'm so happy for those guys there good things happen but i mean it's it's hard to figure out how to how to how how a band can grow with you as a label and how a label can grow with a band at the same rate right it's pretty rare that that happens, totally. you know? Um, so it's, we've, we've been really fortunate to work with friends who have gone on to bigger labels that are great to have when you're doing huge right. worldwide tours, right. you know, and I, and, and just have a lot more resources. They have, we, there are just a few of us, right? you know, it's Chris and me and we have an employee and interns and my wife sometimes helps out. Chris's wife sometimes helps out, but, uh, you know, there at the end of the day, there are only so many of us and so much money. So uh, we've done really well by our artists. You know, we we try to do well with with selling as much as we can. But when it comes to having, um, you know, huge support staff right. overseas, we're relying on our, our distributors. Um, do you guys have a label that you partner job. with? Is it? Uh, we have sometimes sublicensed to labels in other territories but in most cases recently we just work with the secretly group because right. they have an office in europe a couple offices in europe and they do a great job yeah. you know as far as getting stock to artists on tour and doing promotion and publicity over there i actually prefer just working with our distributors because right. they've been great partners and red eye was really good at that too yeah. you know so we have sort of proxy labels through our distributor um over there but um but yeah, so at the moment we're releasing a lot of second and third records uh, of bands. So, you know, we just did this Michael Chapman record, which mm-hmm. was our first with him, and um, a Mind Over Mirrors record, uh, and uh, we're, just, we're putting out our second record by a guy named Jake Xerxes Fossil, who's mm-hmm. a local guy. Uh, at the he end of at, March, uh, uh, the cave recently. He did, yeah, yeah. He played the cave recently. Yeah, amazing guitarist and interpreter of traditional 
material. He's a pretty magical performer. He's a Chapel Hill guy? Uh, he lives in Durham, but okay. he's from Columbus, Georgia, by way of uh, Oxford, Mississippi. Okay. So he moved here a few years ago. Which is a tremendous place. Yeah, are you, it is. Are you yeah, familiar? Yeah, I almost took a job down there a few years ago, and I ended up not taking it because I like it here too much, but Oxford's a cool no, place. No, I've, I've cool always town. had this weird attraction to the... So there, there are... I consider, and you as a folklorist, I guess... You could tell me how wrong I am, or as a guy from the Jersey Shore who mm-hmm. spent <laughs> much of my life living in New York City. New York City has folklore too. Well, sure, does. but I, 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 I kind of divide the South into like four parts. Mm-hmm. There's like the antebellum South, which is North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, parts of Georgia. There's like the Appalachian South, which is Tennessee, Kentucky, mm-hmm. Western North Carolina. There's the Deep South. Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, parts of Georgia, mm-hmm. and then there's Florida. <laughs> <laughs> and I've always kind of had this obsession—not obsession, certainly not an obsession—but I've always, ha- I've always had this attraction to, especially the Deep South. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, because I have absolutely no connection to it. I think, and like you said, there's there's folklore everywhere. You know, I mean, New York City, you know, hip hop, street yeah. basketball. Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, that's to me. There's nothing more inherent to New York City than than pick up basketball. Yeah. But at the same time, I feel like it's not as, the culture isn't as overtly indebted to the folklore as it is in the South, for better and worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if you have any opinion of that, but you know, it's interesting here, especially in Chapel Hill, because we are in the South, mm-hmm. but we're not in the South. Right. You know, this... It, it, it just, in a lot of ways, where we are feels like New Jersey, mm-hmm. <laughs> without the traffic and without people fucking cursing at each uh-huh. other, you know. But it's this weird little liberal enclave. But then you go to, you know, Alamance County, and you're in the South, right? There's no, yeah. there's no doubt, mm-hmm. you know. Sure. So it's kind of this fascinating little world that we live in mm-hmm. right here, and 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 I and I feel like so. My point is. I feel like Oxford is very much the same way. Yeah. Oxford is this little beautiful bucolic college university mm-hmm. town and I mean, you know, when I explain Chapel Hill to people, I'm like, you know, the way I consider it is like every movie that was ever made about college mm-hmm. was set in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. <laughs> and Oxford is very much the same it, way. Yeah, it's similar. Yeah, it's a little more isolated. Right. It's you know, however hour and a half to Memphis. Right. You know, but then again, like you know, you're in the deep south. Yeah, you're in right. fucking Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no doubt. You know. Yeah. So it's this weird, you know, because the closest thing I ever had to that growing up was like, I don't know, uh, 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 conservatives in New Jersey, mm-hmm. which is not really the same. It, it kind, you know, it's just, it's interesting and it, it kind of fascinates mm-hmm. me and 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 watching what's happening in Durham and kind of the influx of people and and just seeing, you know, because I witnessed that firsthand in, in, in Brooklyn, living in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and, and watching what happened. I was in the latter half of it. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't there, man. <laughs> you know, when the yeah, yeah, yeahs were blowing, you know. <laughs> but like, you know, that that was very much a thing in the, in the early part of the 2000s yeah. and, and lesser so when I, but still very much a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 seeing the way that you know people kind of co-opt culture, and now watching that happen in Durham, is, right? It's kind of wacky because again, when you get here in Chapel Hill, this is an established place. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there's really not much is going to change, but 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 Durham is like this living, breathing kind of organism right now. That's it's fascinating. It's it's neat. So it is, yeah, that's yeah. It. It's 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 been interesting living here, and it was a big change from growing up in the Northeast for sure. Um, but I think you're right that Southern culture is more closely identified with and framed by by vernacular culture, right? By its folk arts, its everyday artistic practice, more so than in the Northeast. And uh, why that is, I don't know. Right. There's more space here, you know. Politically, it's different. The landscape is different. People's idea of home is different. You know, economically, it's been shaped by different forces. Different kinds of people moved here to begin with. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that you know, the people who, the agents of change go somewhere and change. Mm -hmm. They don't stay. Mm -hmm. The people who stay want things to stay. And I think that has a lot to do with it. It's much in the same way that, you know, the guys from your hometown, a lot of them stayed in your hometown, Mm -hmm. you know, like the knuckleheads who never Mm -hmm. graduated from high school or whatever. Um, and, and for them, you know, and I have a lot of those friends and I, I love them dearly, you know, and it's, it's like for those guys, their idea of heaven is our hometown never changing a beer after work mm-hmm. going home hanging out with the wife walking the dog you know but then for other people who are kind of more searching going to new york city mm-hmm. moving to los angeles moving to chicago going to austin and being these agents of change which is why i think a lot of the reason and a lot of that does happen in, in the more cosmopolitan areas and a lot of those cosmopolitan areas happen to be in the northeast mm-hmm. you know or the west coast which is why I think in the satin again, not counting Florida, because <laughs> but I think that's a lot of the reason why that thread still exists, right? Because those people, for whatever reason, again, aren't seeking that kind of change, right? So yeah, the South is still more largely rural, right? Despite you know some very large active cities, the cities have a different feel. For sure. Yeah. I mean, New Orleans is a Caribbean city. Right. More than it is a Southern city or even an American city, I think. And so is Miami. Right. You know? Right. Speaking of Florida, North Florida definitely is the South, oh, the yeah. way we think of the Deep South. But South Florida is has more to do with the Caribbean right. and Caribbean culture, I think. Which is one of... Excuse me. It's the same with North and South Louisiana. Yeah. You know, right. I have, I have yeah, a lot sure. of friends You're from right. Shreveport. Yeah, it's very different. There's nothing yeah, like yeah. people from, you know... Yeah, it's very different, and it, it fascinates me too. And and one of the one of the things that I love about touring and going around the country and traveling is is finding the places that are really different. You know, mm-hmm. Boston and New Jersey and Western Washington State are not that different. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Milwaukee and you know Columbus, Ohio, and you know Charlotte, North Carolina are not that different. But then you get into Louisiana, mm-hmm. you know, and they are very different, those places, but it's more in the subtlety. Yeah. Or you get into the desert, you get to Lubbock, Texas, mm-hmm. and that's when things start to, right. you feel like you're in a different world. And, and that's the kind of shit that fascinates me. Even something as basic and benign as like the fact that they're parishes and not counties mm-hmm. in Louisiana. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's just, you know, the food, the culture. It's, 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 it's that, to me, that's the kind of stuff that's, that's, you know, but like you said, I mean, it's, New Orleans isn't even a 
it's not an American city in no, a lot of yeah, ways. I think that's right. You know, yeah. which is which is cool. And and there are places in Texas that are like that. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. Galveston is yeah, like it's for weird. sure. Yeah, so, El Paso. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Which we played a show in El Paso recently. It was weird. Mm. Um, but it was kind of expected. Like we knew it was going to be mm-hmm. weird because it's yeah. <laughs> it's unlike what we're used to. So anyway, yeah, that's that sure. was tremendously tangential. Um, but that's good. So I hate the question, but I have to ask, what is Paradise of Bachelors? <laughs> uh, the name you mean? It's like asking, like, what do your tattoos mean? Like, <laughs> Fuck right. you, dude. I had a guy right. tell me one time, I told him, the, essentially, I told him to fuck off. I didn't yeah. say fuck off. But he's like, well, why, why do you have them? Well, yeah. you have tattoos if you don't want, if you don't want to talk about them. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why? why you don't even, it was like some guy at a bar. I'm like, why are you even trying to talk? Anyway, right. so what That's is it? Funny. You don't have to answer if you don't want to. Uh, Paradise of Bachelors is taken from the name of a short stir- story by Herman Melville. Uh, and I'm a big Melville fan. The story, the story is... This is um, the white whale again. This is exactly. Well, yeah, and I grew up in New England, so... <laughs> That's so. Uh, that's that's why my interest in Melville. But it's a story. It's a, it's a diptych story. It has two parts. One part about um, female workers in a paper mill in Western Massachusetts and these really horrifying, degrading circumstances. And then the second half is about uh, extremely rich, wealthy male lawyers at the Temple Bar in London. And they're unrelated to each other, the two halves of the story, ex- in, except insofar as they're both about um, labor and class. So it's this kind of weird socialist story. Yeah. Um, and it's called Paradise of Bachelors. It's called The Paradise of Bachelors and the Tartarus of Maids. Okay. The Tartarus of Maids is the paper mill, and the Paradise of Bachelors, of course, is the is the temple bar scene with the lawyers. I actually can't remember which half comes first now. It's been so long since I've read it. But anyway, uh, it's always, always struck, struck me as a ridiculous title and sort of an evocative title and an ironic title for a record label, um, which is like such a domain um, of dudes, for which is not a good, not a good thing, but it's largely true. Right. Um, and for a while, we you know it took us a while to start working with female artists, and it was, I was so glad we finally were able to. I was like, yeah. God, thank God. Uh, although our Chris, Chris's wife Constance and my wife Samantha have always been a big part of things, so thank God we have female input, or we would be such a mess. But um, but you know, so the story doesn't have anything to do about music, but it, it is about lawyers who are a part of the music industry. Really, I just thought it for was better an, or worse. for better or for worse. I thought it was an evocative uh, so it is title. The, is the is does the logo have anything to do with the diptych of the story? Oh yeah, maybe there are these two sides. Yeah, you know, no one's ever asked me that, but yeah, I, maybe you're right. So if yeah. you look at the logo, it's two... <laughs> I don't know what they are. Is it a nautical thing? It's, it looks nautical, it looks like doesn't it? They're like, a, they're like, I guess, a Gnostic cross. You know, it's a sim, like a, it's like a wheel, yeah. a circle yeah. with spokes, basically. So yeah. there's two of them, and now that you tell me the yeah. story, I'm making my own No, that's things. good. So, some folks think it looks like a cassette, too, which it kind of does yeah, yeah, a little yeah. bit, like, like spokes on a... Yeah. yeah. Um, but I hadn't thought of that either. Yeah, I don't know. It's... Uh, Designing logos is hard, but yeah. that, we kind of just stuck with that one. <laughs> what's your What's your take on tape labels? Speaking of cassettes, uh, well, or the, cassettes in you general. Know, those guys from uh, from Burger Records are are pals. They're cool, uh, and they did a they did a cassette version of our Red Rippers reissue. That's the only cassette we've put out, um, and it was just because they they wanted to take it on. Yeah, um, 
Yeah, man, I'm down with cassettes. I don't know. Again, I have like sort of funny nostalgia feelings about them that are hard to separate from the reality of them. How fucking terrible they are. They don't sound good. And, and, and they're, they're a pain in the ass. And they break. They're susceptible to problems. Yeah, there's and, a reason they're cheap. And this is coming from a guy. <laughs> I have a tape collection down the hall. It's, yeah, me too. I have a lot of cassettes. <laughs> I rarely listen to them per- personally right. anymore. But I understand the appeal. I understand why people like them. Um I don't know. Do young do kids make mixtapes on cassettes these days? Still? I don't think they do. No, I don't think the mixtape thing, which is tragic but totally understandable. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it, and maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, because you know, I I don't know any twenty year old kids. You know, yeah. So maybe they are, but I don't think they are. I think that they buy tapes. I just don't. I don't know if they have the wherewithal. They don't make them. I don't think that. Yeah, I don't think that, or even like. Strictly, like logistically speaking, like I don't know if they have their turntables hooked up to their cassette player. Right. Yeah. S- right. Again, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, and I wish I, I hope I am. Yeah. Because <laughs> to me, that's one of the most, you know, uh, important things ever. Was and I know I sound like a fucking dweeb, but you know. Well, that's what I liked about tapes too, being able to make them. I mean, there was no other way you could really do that. In when I was a kid. Right. Record music, you know, both using four tracks and then mixtapes. And, you know, I mean, the fact that you can even tape over the top of protected cassettes, like store-bought cassettes and record on them. Or you can make tape loops, like in early bands, I make tape loops by just cutting them apart and, you know, taping. Yeah. (laughs) Taping the the tape. tape. Yeah, Yeah, right. I mean, so that sort of physicality and, like, modification, that's what's appealing to them. Because, yeah, they don't sound good really i mean and they break i mean you have to spool them with yeah. the pencil but i i i do i i like the idea of the artifact yeah. i think that's important you know i'm mm-hmm. not one of those i'm hardly like i have a bunch of records i have a bunch of tapes i have a bunch of cds i listen to spotify mm-hmm. i listen yeah, to itunes like yeah. i uh, there's nothing worse than like medium snobs <laughs> you know but i do like <laughs> artifacts if it's a tape or like, you know, that, that white little box set down there is uh-huh. like a lathe cut from Luna oh, in cool. Indianapolis. Um, you know, like, like that kind of stuff is, it's yeah. cool to have, you know, it's, I don't have a tape deck in my truck. Mm-hmm. I, my tape deck here is broken. I haven't listened to my cassettes. I need to buy a new one. All right. But you know, it's the same with records. You throw a download code in there uh-huh. and it's something that a kid can walk from a show with, you know, but, but I'm going to, I'm going to, we have some interns, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try and hit them. And make it. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna start like a mixtape exchange. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I bet there are some kids doing it. I just I just don't know. It'll happen. The nostalgia yeah. will come. We'll mm-hmm. get to them eventually. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 there's there's something to be said. And I think you know it's nothing new. It's been said a trillion times before. The idea of making the tape that you have to listen to the tape. Mm-hmm. I can make my wife a playlist on Spotify and send her a link and not listen to any of the songs. Yeah. Or make a playlist on iTunes and burn her a CD that I think she'll like. But the labor that goes into sitting there and dubbing every single song. Right. And you're listening to it and you're so <laughs> anyway. Um all right, let's wrap this up. We're gonna uh just tell us a couple of things. What do you got coming up the pipe? Uh we're working on the pike, the pike. new records right now from um uh the weather station. Cool. Canadian songwriter Tamara Lindemann. Uh, another Canadian band, Nap Eyes. Yes, we're working on their new their third record for us. Um, Were they ever in Brooklyn? They've played there before, they never but lived they, there. no, they, they live in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and okay. Montreal. 
Are you a yeah. Trailer Park Boys fan? Uh, I've haven't. I don't know much about it. Oh, no. Yeah. Are you into lowbrow humor? Sure. Yeah. Pretty fucking lowbrow. <laughs> but at the same time, absolutely, absolutely beyond brilliant. Um, I've heard about it. But anytime I think of Halifax, they're, they're, yeah. they're from Halifax. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Halifax seems like a far out place. I've never been there. I'm sure it is. I yeah. mean, again, that's what I think. I think of Trailer Park Boys. I'd, I'd like to visit. It, it, I, I think in my mind, for no other reason than having watched Trailer Park Boys, I just imagine it as like South Jersey. Yeah. Like Cherry Hill. Right. But with, you know, a lot more snow yeah. and nicer people. So, uh, so all right. So you got yeah. that coming. Uh, and uh, new record from Gun Outfit. Cool. L.A. band. Yep. Who are great. Um, uh, the first solo record by a guy named James Elkington, who plays guitar with Steve Gunn. Mm-hmm. He's his other guitarist. And he's... Uh, he plays with Jeff Tweedy. He's the guitarist in Tweedy. Richard Thompson's rhythm guitarist. He plays with everybody. But this is his first solo record. Same um, kind of style as Steve, or it's not not dissimilar. Uh, James is English. Okay. Um, he's lived in Chicago for years, so I think he brings more of an English folk revival sensibility, as well as like kind of Chicago post rock thing. Like he's touring. He's touring with Tortoise. Uh, coming up as their guitar player because he's just filling in um, and playing with broke broke back right now. He plays with everybody, so he has the, he's exists in these kind of different worlds. But so yeah, like Fairport ma- Convention meets the Jesus Lizard, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing. He's a great he's a great uh, guitarist and singer. Which I just really sold five hundred records by saying that because who, would, <laughs> who wouldn't want to hear? That? Yeah, right. Yeah, that does sound pretty good. I like both those bands a lot. Yeah. It might be it might be the worst thing you've ever heard, but I would I would I would spend twenty bucks on it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that. Those are some of the new things we're working on. And uh, gosh, I don't know what else. Want to keep working with Terry Allen for sure. Yeah. Um, He's got. I mean, uh, a bunch of records. I'm sure. Yeah, he has a lot of records and wants to be. He has new material that he's working on as well. Oh, cool. So. Yeah. Oh wow! Awesome. Yeah. Um, what else? We have a record store day seven inch coming out, but I can't talk about it. We're not allowed to I say anything for a couple weeks. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I understand. I don't want to talk it's about a it. it's a tough one, but it's uh, <sighs> we've been talked into doing it last year and this year. We resisted for so long, and then we just couldn't resist anymore. Well, it's one of those things, man. Where same same deal until somebody asked me to do a record store day seven yeah. inch. I was like, fuck yeah! <laughs> I'm like, fuck record store day, dude. You want to do a seven inch? Yeah, dude, you know it's it's, yeah. it's it's. I mean, that's it's one of those things that's good for stores and it's good for some labels, and it can be good for artists, depending. Sure, but it's miserable for everybody else. It just hurts. Like the, the small experience band. of it hurts going the small there. Labels. It's anybody's trying to get an, a regular record pressed is a disaster. Black out. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and the fact that it's just so overrun with weird, like major label vanity projects. I think the most egregious was the. Like, I think there was a. A Top Gun soundtrack picture disc. Picture disc. Yeah, I have that to was disagree. The most I have to disagree. And I love that film and the soundtrack totally. But I have to disagree <laughs> and say the most egregious was uh, the entire Bruce Springsteen catalog without any bonus material. Just, just, pre- just repressed. Just repressed. Wow. Of records you could buy in for every, like four dollars. Every bin in America. Yeah, that is sad. Single. The only one, oh, the Wild, the Innocent, and the Eastery Shuffle. Maybe yeah. that one's a little bit harder than the other ones to find. Yeah. If you can't go into every record store and spend twenty four dollars and walk out with the entire Springsteen catalog, <laughs> you're fucking you're fucking up. Um, anyway, I'm not even gonna 
get into it. So, um, all right. So, where can uh, where can people find you online? Uh, Paradiseofbachelors.com, and from there you can go many other places. You know, we have Bandcamp page and SoundCloud and all that good stuff. But www.paradiseofbachelors.com is is where to check it out. Now we always end our show with the seven random questions. Okay, this is like I, this is a this is a, a blatant John Stewart rip. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Or was it John? No, it was um who is uh Sports Center? Are you a sports guy? Not really. He was the original host of The Daily Show. Craig Kilborn. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Remember? Okay. He, yeah. And he's, yeah. he ended the show with the five, yeah, the right, five right. questions. Yes, yeah. Okay. So fuck him. This is the seven <laughs> questions. <laughs> seven. All right. First thing, don't even think about it. Food Network or Animal Planet? Food Network. Okay. Going, yeah. going back to our conversation before, I didn't plan this, but it just worked out this way. Appalachia or Deep South? Uh, Appalachia, I feel closer to. Growing Pains Leo or Dad Bod Leo? <laughs> Growing Pains Leo. Uh, Slayer or Anthrax? Slayer always. <laughs> um, Big Bird or Cookie Monster? Cookie Monster. Planes or trains? Trains. And the last of the seven random questions, Goffin or King? <laughs> <laughs> Damn, King, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I don't know much about Goffin. Other than, other than he was right. He's just the, the, other, the other guy. <laughs> Very cool. Awesome. All right, man. Well, thank you for coming on a weeknight especially. Yeah, thanks um, for having me. Yeah, this was fun. It was. Hey, Emily's G-chatting me from the other room. Uh, <laughs> not now, Emily. Um, again, Brendan Greaves. Did I say that right? Yeah. Paradise of Bachelors. Check them out online. We're going to play a song now. I don't know from who because we haven't discussed that yet, but Brendan's going to send me um, uh, definitely not the Mike Taylor Happy Birthday <laughs> Golden Girl song, <laughs> but something. Uh, send me an MP3. Okay. We're going to play it right now. Not right now, but it's the magic of editing. So thank you. Uh, this is the people on my floor, and we will see you soon. Thanks, man. Thank you. Yeah. Well, there it is. Brendan Greaves. Um Fantastic conversation, the kind of guy that you want to talk to over a beer, which then turns into six beers, which then you have to call an Uber home um, because obviously you don't realize that an hour and 20 minutes has passed, which was the case with this podcast. Um, but I generally try and will continue to try and avoid editing um, unless there's anything major that needs to be cut because... Um, I think there was value in that entire talk and I think it was, it was great. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed talking to Brennan and kind of digging inside of his mind a little bit and seeing what, um, what he's about. And I hope I helped illustrate that for you or we helped illustrate, or I guess he helped illustrate. I facilitated. Um, anyway, he sent me a track by, and I hope I'm saying this correctly, Jake Xerxes Fussell, um, who's a local guy. Uh, I believe he's a Durham guy. Um, and this track is called Have You Ever Seen Peaches Growing on a Sweet Potato Vine? Um, so check it out. Check him out. Check Paradise of Bachelors out. Support local independent labels. Support independent labels. Support local shit. And uh, tune in next time. Which will be a conversation with Jackson, Tennessee's The Colonel who made um, 
probably my favorite record thus far of 2017. But this week isn't about the Colonel. This week is about Brendan Graves and Paradise of Bachelors. So dig this tune. Dig Paradise of Bachelors. Support independent labels. We'll talk to you soon. The people on my floor. All my